Good morning. It's Sunday, the fourth day of December, 2016. Imagine eight men all stuffed in a long metal tube, packed almost as tight as sardines in a tin, and then to sink to their deaths at the cold ocean bottom. It happened not once or twice, but three times in a Civil War submarine, and I have this story on the 115th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Thanks so much for having coffee with me today. Hear that? I can breathe. Common cold, you put up a mighty fight, but you still lost. You tried, but I survived, so there. Now, before we get started, uh, a little news about Coffee with Jeff. I'll be doing a show this week and next week. And then I'm going to take the next three weeks off, you know, for the holidays and such. I'll be back on January 8th, 2017 with a new show. But starting in 2017, Coffee with Jeff will no longer be a weekly show. I'm going to do it every other week. And you know why? Because it's getting just too hard to do a show every week. It's a lot of work to research, write, perform, edit, and post the show every week. And now that I've used up all the easy subjects and the ones I'm doing now require a bit more research, I just, I need two weeks to do each show. Well, I hope you understand, and I do think the shows will be better. And and look, if you want to hear the soothing sounds of my voice, like weekly or even daily, you can listen to Geek Days on the Psycon Network. I, I make a daily appearance on that show. Uh, looks like we got a little UFO news. Headline of the HNGN website reads, Aliens draining solar energy? NASA captures image of monster UFO circling around the sun. Okay, so there's this picture of the sun, and there's this little white dot with a stream of light or plasma coming up from the sun to the dot. And UFO blogger Scott C. Waring, who we've talked about before on this show, said, This is definitely a UFO shot out of the sun yesterday. It may be using the sun's energy to fuel itself or recharge in some way, but it's leaving at high speeds. Okay, Scott, whatever. You know, there's other people who think that the object around the sun seen in these pictures is just some kind of coronal mass ejection, but if it is aliens and they're that close to the sun and they can extract plasma from the sun, then do me a favor. Leave them alone, all right? Let them make the first move. Trust me, we'll all be better off this way. Anyway, how about the story of an American Civil War submarine? This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. 
That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Uh, I've been interested in submarines and sub- submarine technology uh, most of my life. And uh, when I came to America in 1970, I began to gather information on the Hunley. What I discovered led me to believe that the submarine could in fact be found. Um, in about 12 years ago, Clive Cussler expressed an interest in the submarine and came to South Carolina and uh, conducted a search. I was then uh, successful in encouraging him to come back to form a partnership with the Institute of Archaeology at the University of South Carolina in 1993 and 94. We actually got into the water and conducted a second search uh, with the result that uh, uh, with Cussler's help, the submarine was recovered Clive Cussler discovered. History is filled with those, it seemed like a good idea at the time, moments. I've had many of those myself. Today we have just such a story, the story of the H.L. Hunley, the first submarine to sink a ship during wartime. Our story begins in the early days of the American Civil War, the war between the Northern Union and the Southern Confederacy in which the Union's General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott, came up with the Anaconda Plan. The plan was to blockade the southern ports of the Mississippi River to cut off and isolate the South from the outside world. The idea was likened to the coils of a snake suffocating its victim, hence the name. Many ideas were being considered by the Confederacy to help clear the Union boats from the ports. What was needed was something that could sneak up on a Union ship. It would have to be able to approach without being seen or heard. Perhaps something that could travel underwater. You know, something like a submarine? The idea of a submarine was not a new idea in 1860. There's a story that in 1562, two Greeks submerged and surfaced in the River Tangus near the city of Toledo several times in the presence of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V without getting wet and with the flame they were carrying still burning. Whether they were in something that resembled a submarine or not might be in question, but we do know in 1620 Cornelius Drebbel, a Dutchman in the service of James I of England, built the first submersible. No one is sure exactly what it looked like, but many assumed it was a bell that was towed by a boat. In the year 1800, there was a human-powered submarine built in France, the Nautilus, which was designed by an American, Robert Fulton. Now, James McClintock and Baxter Watson were in the steam gauge manufacturing business in New Orleans and were known for their talents in engineering and design. Once the Civil War began, the two built a couple of bullet-making machines and sold them to the Confederate government. McClintock and Watson teamed up with Horace Lawson Huntley to work on a submersible iron torpedo boat. Huntley was a lawyer who had given up his practice to fight once the Civil War broke out. The three men built a small, three-man submarine named Pioneer in New Orleans, Louisiana. During its testing, it was intentionally sunk as Union soldiers advanced to the area. It would later be raised by the Union, examined, and then sold for scrap. Since the Union forces captured New Orleans in April of 1862, McClintock, Watson, and Hunley moved operations to Mobile, Alabama to work on their next project, 
a submarine called the American Diver. They teamed up with the Park and Lions Machine Shop, the business of Tom Parks and Tom Lyons. The new sub was 36 feet long, or 11 meters, and 3 feet high, or less than 1 meter, and had a five-man crew, most of which were used to power the hand-crank propeller. The hand-crank method was only used after both electric and steam power had failed. The idea to use the American diver to attack a Union boat was to pull a contact mine behind her, far enough back that when it made contact with the enemy ship and exploded, it wouldn't hurt the sub. There was one unsuccessful attempt to use the American diver in an attack, and afterwards, Jane McClintock said that the sub was unable to get a speed significant to make the boat of service against the vessels blockading the port. There was a second attack planned, but before it could be carried out, the submarine was lost in a storm somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. Fortunately, the crew barely escaped with their lives. The wreck of the American diver has never been recovered. But the men were not ready to give up on the idea of a submarine just yet. And right after their last effort was lost, they began working on a bigger and faster submarine. It would be called the Porpoise, and, and legend has it that Hunley used a steam boiler for its construction, although recently that myth has been disproved. The ship would have a seven-man power source to hand-crank the propeller and an eighth man for steering. It had ballast tanks on the front and the back that would be filled and emptied with hand pumps to raise or dive the ship. It also had plates or fins on its side that could force the ship up or down. It was truly a state-of-the-art machine, extremely sleek, almost like a knife with a three-blade propeller in the back. It measured 39.5 feet long and 4 feet 3 inches high, or 12 by 1.3 meters. It was a craft way ahead of its time. One of the problems with the ship were the two watertight hatches, one forward and one aft. They were 1.5 inches or 42 centimeters wide by 22 inches or 35 centimeters long, making escape from them very difficult. After a successful test in July of 1863 in which the ship attacked a coal flatboat, the submarine was shipped by rail to Charleston, North Carolina, where help was needed with the constant attacks from Union ships. At this point, the Confederate Army seized the submarine, although the original private builders of Horace Huntley and his partners would remain involved for further testing and operations. Confederate Navy Lieutenant John A. Payne of the CSS Chicora volunteered to be the submarine's captain, and for his crew, he used seven men from his ship. Neither he nor his crew were very familiar with the submarine, and on October 29, 1863, they were getting ready for their first attack when the sub suddenly disappeared off the end of Fort Johnson's wharf. It seemed that when they were preparing to make a test dive, Lieutenant Payne accidentally stepped on the lever controlling the sub's diving planes. Now with the hatches still open, the sub began to dive and it quickly took on water. Payne and two others escaped, but five other crewmen drowned. Becky Honors received a letter from her husband who was stationed at Fort Johnson, and he described the day. Sunday morning, August 30th, 1863. My dear Becky, 
You doubtless remember, and perhaps you saw while in the city, the iron torpedo boat with certain parties brought from Mobile to blow up the iron side. They have been out three times without accomplishing anything, and the government, suspecting something wrong, proposed to them to allow a naval officer to go with them on their next trial, which they refused. The boat was therefore seized, and yesterday some of the men from one of the gunboats was placed on her to learn how to work her and to go out and see what they could do. Just as they were leaving the wharf at Fort Johnson, where I was myself a few minutes before, an accident happened which caused the boat to go underwater before they were prepared for such a thing, and five out of the nine went down with her and were drowned. The other four made their escape. They had not last night recovered either the boat or the bodies. Poor fellows, they were five in one coffin. A few days later, a general sent the following order. Fish torpedo boat still at bottom of the bay, no one working on it. Adopt immediate measures to have it raised at once. And eventually the sub was pulled from the water and the dead crew was removed for burial. But the Confederates weren't done yet. For its next crew, they thought it was best to put people who were experienced with the craft in charge. Horace L. Huntley, the man who had been in charge of the building of the ship, was made captain and Thomas W. Park, son of the co-owner of Park and Lyons, joined the crew, and other members of the crew were thought to have been from the machine shop where the ship was built. Now with a crew of people who understood the craft and how it worked, nothing could go wrong, right? Well, on August 15, 1863, the ship left the pier and made a normal test drive. The men on the shore waited for it to reappear on the surface of the water. Then, minutes turned to hours, and it became apparent the sub wasn't coming back up. For the second time in three months, the ship would have to be recovered and the drowned crew would have to be removed. This time, all eight of the men had been killed. And because of bad weather, it took a few days before divers with all their heavy diving equipment could get out there. And, and when they did, they found the ship with her bow buried deep into the mud, with her hull protruding at a 30-degree angle. It would appear the sub had plowed nose first into the black mud. It was thought that maybe the forward water compartment couldn't be emptied, causing the ship to head straight into the bottom. One could only imagine the eight men in this dark, cramped compartment... Fifty feet down in the freezing water, terrified, screaming for help with a limited air supply, slowly suffocating to death. But even with the loss of the second crew, the ship was raised once again, the bodies removed, and the plans were made for the sub to be used in an attack. Horace L. Huntley was buried with full military honors at Magolia Cemetery in Charleston, South Carolina on November 8, 1863. The submarine was renamed in his honor and now was officially the H.L. Huntley. And for the Huntley's third crew, Lieutenant George E. Dixon took over command. George was a steamboat engineer who had lived in New Orleans, Louisiana before the war. Now, there is an interesting story about Dixon and a gold coin, and the story goes something like this. His sweetheart, Queenie Bennett, had given him a $20 U.S. gold piece for luck, and he kept it in his pants pocket wherever he went. During the Battle of Shiloh on April 6, 1862, Dixon was struck in the upper thigh by a musket ball, and in an amazing stroke of luck, the ball struck the coin, 
spending the coin, but probably saving his leg or maybe even his life. And although there was still a bit of damage to his leg that would cause him to walk with a limp for the rest of his life, it could have been a lot worse. After that incident, he inscribed the coin with the words, Shiloh, April 6, 1862, my life preserver. And then his initials, G-E-D. We'll get back to that coin near the end of today's story. Now, the explosive charge that would be used to sink a battleship was attached to the front of the submarine. There was a 22-foot wooden spur with a barbed point at the end. Attached to that was a copper cylinder containing 21 grams of black powder. The sub would ram a ship, embedding the barbed end into the hull, and then back away, leaving the explosives attached to the ship. There was a cord still attached to the explosives that ran back to the sub, letting the crew set off the bomb when they were at a safe distance. Though recently, many have suggested that there might have been an electrical detonation device used rather than the string. If I'm not describing the system all that well, just go on Google and put in H.L. Huntley. You'll see many drawings of how the explosives worked. The evening of February 17, 1864 was very cold and quiet, and it was on that day that the H.L. Huntley was put into action just outside Charleston Harbor with an attack on the USS Housatonic. The Housatonic was stationed at the entrance to Charleston about five miles offshore. It was a 1,240-ton steam-powered sloop of war with 12 large cannons and a complement of about 160 officers and enlisted men. Its crew had already heard rumors of a Confederate secret weapon. A lookout spotted something moving in the chilly waters about 100 yards off, approaching the ship. He sensed this was something more than sea life and sounded the alarm. The ship's commander, Charles Pinkering, would later say it had the appearance of a plank moving in the water. The sub was riding near or on top of the surface of the water, steadily moving towards the ship with its seven men cranking the propeller. The USS Housatonic attempted to fire upon the strange craft with its cannons, but those weapons were not designed with something like this in mind. It was impossible to target something so low in the water. The Union soldiers began firing their weapons, revolvers and rifles, but all attempts to stop it were useless. Within two minutes of the first sighting, the H.L. Huntley rammed her spar torpedo into Housatonic's starboard side. When the explosives were detonated, the Housatonic began to sink rapidly. The two lifeboats were quickly lowered down and filled with as many men as they could carry. For the rest, the rigging remained above the water and many of the men not in the lifeboats were saved by climbing on the rigging. Only two officers and three men died on the Housatonic. The H.L. Huntley thus achieved the first sinking of a warship in combat by a submarine. But the H.L. Huntley never returned back to base, and the circumstances to what happened to her is still under question. It is believed that the sub was still in operation for at least an hour after the attack. A signal was seen from the sub letting the base know that it was going to return to shore. Then the sub went under the water and never rose back up. A post-war correspondent wrote, Two blue lights were prearranged signals, and a lookout on the Housatonic reported that he saw a blue light on the water after a ship sank. But the fact was, there was 
No blue light on the sub, just a clear one. No one is absolutely positive that this light which many saw actually came from the sub or not. One theory about what happened was that she suffered damage when her explosive was detonated. Perhaps she had not gotten far enough away. The sub was supposed to retreat to about 150 feet, but some witnesses stated that the submarine was no more than 100 feet away when her torpedo exploded. Another idea is that when the USS Canandaigua came to rescue the sailors of the Housatonic, they accidentally rammed the Huntley. Whatever the reason was, the sub was lost for good along with its crew. And if you're keeping score, that's 21 who had died in the cold steel of the Huntley. Like I said, the Huntley was lost for good. Or until 1995. That's when novelist Clive Custler's National Underwater and Marine Agency located it. And five years later, it was recovered with its eight-men crew still inside. One of those crewmen were Dixon, and he still had his lucky coin. The crew was removed, and over a hundred years after their death, they finally got a proper burial. Since the recovery, a few new theories have been suggested. The human remains were still at their stations. There was no evidence that they were trying to escape, and since there was no damage that might have been caused in an explosion, the thought is maybe the explosion, while not damaging the ship, did knock the crew unconscious, and they all died without waking. Another one is the crew may have misjudged the amount of oxygen they had available when they went under the water. It's now really starting to point to a lack of oxygen making the crew unconscious, said the chairman of the South Carolina Huntley Commission. They may have been cranking and moving, and it was a miscalculation as to how much oxygen they had. And yet, even though this sub ended in tragedy... It should be noted that th what these men had accomplished wouldn't be done again until the Germans with their U-boats in World War II. And one can only imagine how the fate of the war might have changed if the South had a functioning submarine. New evidence gives a clearer picture what, of what may have sunk the Confederate Civil War submarine H.L. Hunley in 1864. It had long been thought the Hunley attached a torpedo to the bottom of the Union blockade ship USS Housatonic and then backed off. But researchers now say the Hunley was only about 20 feet away from the ship when it blew up, meaning the explosion could have knocked out or killed the Hunley's crew. Scientists said yesterday remnants of that torpedo were found securely attached to the tip of the submarine's spar, a pole that served as the Hunley's weapon delivery system. The Housatonic sank and the Hunley never returned with its eight-man crew. The wreck of the Hunley was discovered in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. It was raised from the bottom in August 2000. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. After listening to this, if you find yourself interested in the H.L. Huntley, go over to YouTube and do a search. There are plenty of videos of the sub after it was pulled out from the ocean's water. And if you're really interested, you can visit the Warren Lash Convention Center in North Charleston, South Carolina. I looked at TripAdvisor, and most reviews were very positive, although one said, Our entire tour took place in a large room that was roped off in sections. There was nothing to see besides the actual submarine, which was submerged in murky water and behind thick glass. We could hardly see it all. Basically, we stood in the same place for 45 minutes and listened to guide talk.
But if you read the rest of the reviews, there's some very good things that are, are said about it. Well, like I said, uh, I'll be back next week, and then I'm going to take the next three weeks off and enjoy my holiday. I hope you do the same. So anyway, why don't we go to the ending credits? You know, if you'd like to help out the show, and we could really use your help, uh, why don't you think about going over to our Patreon page and becoming a subscriber? I mean, you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month, and trust me, that one dollar will go a long way in helping us keep these podcasts going. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link up at the top. And for all of you who already support the show, thank you so much. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. Again, that's Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, feel free. I always answer every email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, and believe me, that's something I understand, just go over to iTunes and leave a review. I could use some more reviews. And remember, all the links that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. My wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks, everybody. I'll talk to you next week. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.